versus Lanza Research International. Mr. Snyder. Mr. Chief Justice, <clears throat> and may it please the Court, the members of Congress in 1976 who enacted the copyright law of 1976 would be quite surprised to learn from the Ninth Circuit's decision below that Congress allegedly intended Section 602 of that law to override the long-standing and fundamental principle in copyright law known as the first sale doctrine, and thus to allow a manufacturer to control the import and the subsequent resale of particular copies of goods that the manufacturer itself had already sold. This Ninth Circuit decision is inconsistent not only with the statutory language, but also with the legislative history. And indeed, Congress simply has not addressed, either in the copyright law or elsewhere, respondents' efforts to curtail parallel imports. Well, Mr. Snyder, the uh, government has come in and urged us to rely on uh, the sections that 602, uh, dealing with infringing importation of goods, and they tell us that uh, the United States has entered into treaties on the assumption that that provision governs. Uh, what do we do with that argument made by the government? Justice O'Connor, I believe the issue before the court is what did Congress say and what did Congress intend in a yes, statute? I, I think so, but I would be very interested to know how you evaluate the extent to which this country has relied on some other interpretation, as the government argues. I believe that the government has shown that in several bilateral trade agreements that were never submitted to Congress either for consideration or for action, the government has asserted the position uh, in, in dealing with the governments of Cambodia, Trinidad and Tobago, and, and several other countries, that it is the executive branch's position that parallel imports of the kind at issue here should be curtailed. We believe that to the extent the government is relying on copyright law for that position, that it is up to Congress to pass the law and set the policy, and it is up to this court to interpret that position of Congress and what Congress said and meant. Do we owe deference to any government agency in interpreting these laws? I believe yeah. not, Justice O'Connor. This is not a case where the government has even alleged Chevron deference. This is not a case where the government has been assigned by Congress any duty under 602A. There are no regulations. There is no role for the Copyright Office or any other agency of, of the executive branch to administer 602A. It is solely a private right of action. And under those circumstances, we think there is no deference to be accorded. The executive branch is free to take whatever position it wishes in bilateral negotiations but if their positions conflict with the position of Congress, we submit they should go to Congress for a change in the law. Let me ask you one more question since I have you interrupted, and then I'll leave it alone. Section 501, dealing with infringement of copyright, says anyone who violates any of the exclusive rights of the copyright owner covered by Sections 106 through 118, or who imports copies into the United States in violation of Section 602, is an infringer. Uh, under your theory, uh, that section wouldn't be needed, I suppose, 
insofar as it refers to Section 602. I think it's correct that 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 particular language could have been omitted. However, it would have raised questions where, for courts to interpret the language, since Section 106 obviously deals with distribution to the extent we're, we're discussing it here, and we all agree that importation is not literally the same thing as distribution. Congress chose to make importation part of the distribution right. Had Section 501 not specifically referred to importation, someone could have argued that the reference there to to distribution or to Section 106 didn't necessarily cover things that were actually dealt with in 602 but not literally in 106. I think it was a situation where Congress appropriately tried to be sure that, that their intention was crystal clear. One of the things they, just on on this point, uh, one of the things they wanted to make sure of, perhaps, is that 602 uh, was kept intact as an independent provision, because 602 says, under their reading, uh, that it is an independent act of infringement to import without the consent. Well, it is is an act of infringement. However, I think it's not totally independent in the sense that the language of 602 specifically made importation a violation of the distribution right under 106. So as we interpret the language, Congress was saying that we wish to make importation a separate type of violation of the distribution right. But Mr. Snyder, if you're right about that, wouldn't it have been more logical to say in the first part of 501A, exclusive rights, section 106 through including the right the 602 right, instead of making it conjunctive, as instead of making it separate. And your argument would, would fit very well if Congress had said 602 belongs with, with 106A, but it makes it separate. And in that light, going back to Justice O'Connor's point about the representations this nation has made, the government isn't making them in the air. It does point to this 501A. And if that's a plausible reading, even if we don't owe Chevron deference, don't we owe some, don't we give some weight to the representations our government has made to other governments? Well, first of all, Justice Ginsburg, 501 obviously is not the section that specifically was dealing with either the distribution right or the importation issue. And I think to determine Congress's intent the first place that I would urge the court to look would be the, the statutes directly on point, including 109. But I, I take your point that it could have been phrased in a different way. However, I would, I would suggest respectfully to the court that by referring in 602 to the rights under 106, Congress was doing something that really made quite a bit of sense, and that is that all of the panoply of conditions and exceptions to distribution rights that are contained within 106 and its cross-reference section, thereby were, were applied here. Section 106 begins by saying, subject to sections 107 through 120, quote unquote, there will be certain exclusive rights, including the distribution right. Those exceptions include such things as the fair use doctrine, which is a quite fundamental element of American copyright law. By by making 602 a part of the 106 right and cross-referencing it the way Congress did, it included 
the fair use doctrine, the first sale doctrine, the other exceptions into, into the importation rules, just as they're in all the other parts of the, of the copyright law. Section 501 simply provides for the enforcement mechanism for all of the rights, and I would respectfully suggest that because it lists importation as, a, as an additional word in 501, it really doesn't negate, I don't believe, the intent of Congress in the operative section. And obviously one of the key operative sections here is section 109. 109, which is the, the current codification of the first sale doctrine, which is a doctrine that goes back well over a hundred years in copyright law, section 109 says that if someone is the owner of a particular copy that was lawfully made under this title, that that owner can sell or otherwise dispose of that copy. And we believe that that is about as broad language as Congress could use, and in fact follows uh, a, quite a lengthy history of broad language in the statutes, the predecessor statutes, and in the legislative history, all of which have made clear that Congress intended to say that once a particular copy that's lawfully made under the U.S. copyright law has been sold, the copyright owner's rights cease, and that's the actual language in the legislative history of the 76 Act, the rights cease of the U.S. copyright owner as to that particular copy. We think that the first sale doctrine, there is nothing in the language of the statute that suggests that the first sale doctrine was being overridden or that Congress intended to change it. There's nothing in the legislative history where Congress was talking about changing the first sale doctrine. And we think the more natural reading of all of these sections together, including Section 501, the more natural reading to try to, to follow the congressional intent, not the policy arguments that each side can make, not the positions that the executive branch might wish to take as a matter of policy or as a matter of, of bilateral negotiation. We think that the fairer way to read the actual language of Congress is the way we've, we've set forth. The, the treaties, excuse me, they're not treaties actually, they're bilateral agreements that the government has cited. Uh, they represent positions that the executive branch has taken. I might add that they've taken that position in multilateral negotiations and the international community has so far rejected them but Trinidad and Tobago and, and several other countries, and you have the lodgings in front of you, have agreed to the U.S. position. However, there is no liability on the part of the United States if the U.S. position is wrong. If there's a violation of those agreements, there is an obligation for consultation. There is no arbitration. There is no financial liability. And we would respectfully suggest that if the executive branch wishes to curtail parallel imports beyond the language of existing statute, then if they wish to rely on copyright law or any other congressional enactment, they should go to Congress. Mr. Snyder, can I ask you another question that I haven't quite figured out the answer? If your position is correct, what is the function of the three exceptions to the statute? The 602 exceptions, Justice Stevens, we believe apply on their terms to very limited situations where people are importing or bringing property in for personal use or for non-commercial use. Each of the exceptions, library use, government use, do not apply to commercial uh, or distribution. And 
they apply generally to very limited numbers. In other words, you can bring in one copy or bring in a copy in your baggage. We think those are very different situations from the first sale doctrine that deals with, with uh, why would, sale. Why wouldn't those exceptions already be protected by the first sale doctrine if it applied? That's what I'm not quite clear. Justice Stevens, they are not because the language of the 602 exceptions is not limited to copies that are lawfully made under this title. In other words, the, one of the paradigm situations that the copyright considerations we're looking at was where property is copyrighted under a foreign copyright. And this happens very frequently. This is a quite common situation, and it was discussed at length in the deliberations leading up to the statute. If an author gives the British copyright to his or her book to a British company, and the U.S. copyright to his or her book to a U.S. copyright holder, the U.S. copyright holder obviously wishes to avoid having the unrelated British copyright holder ship a thousand copies of the book here because the U.S. copyright holder has no control over the independent entity, has not been paid anything for those copies, etc. That was discussed in the deliberations leading up to the statute, and the phrase in 109, lawfully made under this title, we submit means copies that are made under the U.S. copyright law or made with the authorization of the U.S. copyright holder, whereas, Justice Stevens, under 602, if I'm traveling in Britain and I pick up a copy of a British book that's been British copyrighted and I put it in my baggage, I can come home with it. Or if you're traveling in some other country and you pick up a totally unauthorized copy of a phonograph, a CD, or, some, or a book, totally unauthorized. You'd be protected as a traveler if you bought it and brought it back in. Yes, Justice O'Connor. Under the 602 exception. That's correct. But it would not be protected under 106, presumably. We, we agree with that, and we think this, that that is a very significant distinction between the two statutes. I, maybe I, you know, I, I'll reveal my ignorance about that. I just want to be sure I understand. In other words, uh, if, if the author gave the British copyrights to a separate company from the publisher, the American publisher, the British company then sells to some, some person in Britain abroad a bunch of copies. Those are not protected by the first sale doctrine? They... As, not as we interpret the statute, although this has not been addressed in, in any of the decisions that I'm aware of precisely. But the lawfully made under this title language of the first sale doctrine in 109, the, the, the government agrees with us on this point that, that that means it's made with the authorization of the U.S. copyright holder. In other words, made under U.S. Yes, copyright. The U.S. copyright. Oh, I see. The U.S. copyright holder could be a licensee of the author, and you have a different a different copyright holder who's also a licensee in Britain. That's correct. It's quite common for uh, so property. British copies would not be lawfully made under this title within the meaning of 109, in your view. That that is our understanding, and that is exactly the parallel or analog to what this court held in the Kmart case, which obviously arose under customs laws and trademark law. But in Kmart, the Solicitor General then argued that the first sale doctrine in the trademark law should protect a U.S. mark holder from competition from a totally unrelated entity, such as the kind we're talking about now, but should not protect the U.S. mark holder if the U.S. mark holder is a parent or a subsidiary of the foreign mark holder, that was the position the government took then, and this court was unanimous, while it, the court split on several other 
of the, the various uh, alternative cases dealt with in Kmart, the case one and the case 2A situations that I've just referred to, the court was unanimous on that. The position we're taking is exactly the same under copyright law as this court found Congress had authorized under the trademark law. And we think it, it makes good sense in terms of the interests that are at stake. And most importantly, it follows the language of the statute. Does the U.S. copyright holder have to have specific authorization from the author to manufacture abroad in order to avoid a violation of 602? Well, we do not believe that 602 limits the question of where you manufacture. Okay. And there's a BMG decision from the Ninth Circuit that we cite in our brief that seems to say the opposite, but that decision has been criticized by a number of other courts, including the Ninth Circuit in a later case. We don't think the language of Congress makes anything turn specifically on where you manufacture it. Now, to, to fully answer your question, Justice Souter, there could well be contractual limitations if the, if the author divided up the worldwide rights in a certain way where it's manufactured. But if the contract is silent, your answer is the, the geography of manufacture is irrelevant. I think that's correct, but I, I, uh, I'm not certain. Okay. Am I right in my understanding of your answer to Justice Stevens that 1, 2, and 3 are exceptions from 602? They all deal with, let's imagine, a human being who comes to the border. That human being who comes to the border got his book, for example, some way or other. If the way he got that book was subject to the first sale doctrine, then under your theory, you wouldn't need one, two, or three. But if it was not, you do need one, two, or three. And whether that category not is big or little or medium-sized uh, is beside the point. It's not the null set. I think that's correct, right? Justice Breyer. There, could, there, there are cases, I think, where there, there could be some overlap between the 109 protection and 602, but there are a great number of cases where there's not overlap. I mean, there might be a lot of people who have those books coming to the border who didn't buy them. Correct. In which case, there's no first sale doctrine under anybody's theory. Well, if there they don't no own sale. them... If they don't own them, there might not, there wouldn't be a first sale doctrine. You actually, you don't have to have bought them, I believe. It could have been yeah, a well, or other sailor, situations. Yeah. There also could be situations where uh, the the uh, the property wasn't was made under U.S. law or wasn't made under U.S. law. There could be cases where the traveler took it with him or her when they went abroad and then brought it back. So there are a variety of hypotheticals. I agree with you. It's, they're not totally separate. The, the two statutes have some overlapping situations, I agree. There's one other language point that the government makes in addition to its 501 argument. It refers to the later provision, the one in the, um, what is it, the, the uh, tip, the 905 and 906, and that 906 um, includes, 906B refers not simply to otherwise dispose, but includes the word import. And the argument is, when Congress, uh, Congress knows there's a difference between importing and otherwise disposing. Well, Justice Ginsburg, I think it's fair to say that, that this statute, as many other congressional enactments, probably could have been phrased in, a, in different ways, some of which would have made our job easier. But, for example, 106A, which we cite, is a statute that specifically says that that provision 
is an exception, is, is uh, that the first sale doctrine and the other exceptions don't apply to that one. In other words, in 106A, Congress made it very clear they were enacting a provision that wasn't going to include the exceptions in, in 106 that we've relied on. So, you know, we've made the, the assertion that if, if that Congress knows how to make it clear that something is not subject to the exceptions, they did it in 106A. I think you're correct, the government is correct, that there are other ways that, uh, that Congress could have phrased several of these provisions that probably would have made them a little bit clearer. But I don't think there's anything in, in the sections that, that uh, you just cited, Justice Ginsburg, that's inconsistent with our position. They simply made that section a little clearer than they made 602 and, and, uh, and 106. I think it's undisputed by everyone that there is no specific reference in the legislative history to the interplay between 106, uh, I'm sorry, between 602 and 109. In other words, no Congress member ever addressed how these two should go together. Um, we believe that the best way to, to deal with that, given the language that's in the statutes at issue here, the most relevant statutes, 602 and 109, is to say Congress just hasn't addressed the matter. Congress obviously is free to address it and, and uh, the government can either submit the bilateral agreements that, that it's negotiated to Congress for review, or it can go in with a statute on parallel imports. There actually have been quite a number of proposed bills to curtail parallel imports. Well, what is your response to the argument, <coughs> I recall it was part of the Ninth Circuit's opinion, that the predecessor of 602 uh, was worded in a way which would cover many of the examples you gave, and yet they added the terms acquired outside the United States. So. Uh, it, it seems that your arguments give very little weight uh, or significance to the changes between the, two, between the predecessor statute and 602 as now written. I think the predecessor statute only applied to pirated goods, Justice Kennedy, and the government and the respondent have both, made the, uh, have both referred to the fact that the new statute in 76 was clearly intended to cover more than just pirated goods, but uh, so-called lawfully made goods as well. We agree with that. And that's exactly the case that I referred to that's analogous to the Kmart situation. In other words, goods that are lawfully made under foreign copyright laws, but not under the U.S. law, we think are covered by 602. And the fact that 109 is limited to lawfully made goods under this title, we think draws the line between goods made under U.S. copyright law and goods made under foreign copyright law. And we've laid out in our brief quite a number of situations where the new 602 does have meaning because it applies, for example, in the case where, where an unrelated foreign copyright holder has produced the good. It applies to many other cases. Basically, our position is that 109 applies in the importation situation just as it applies to all other aspects of the distribution right. And 109 limits the distribution right to some extent, and we think the importation rules in 602 have become part of the distribution right, and 109 applies to those well, as to, well. To prevail, do, do we have to think that importation is a form of distribution? No, I do not believe it is literally a form of distribution. If it were, there would be no need for the 602 statute. But Congress, we believe, intended to subsume 602 within the distribution right. We think that's what it meant by saying that an unauthorized importation is a violation of the right under 106, that Congress was simply declaring it to be a, 
for legal purposes, a form of distribution, even though linguistically it may not be precisely that. If I may, Mr. Chief Justice, I would like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Snyder. Uh, Mr. Getch, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I think it's important at the outset to note that we believe that the Kmart v. Cartier case is not opposite to this case at all. In that case, the Court addressed Section 526 of the Tariff Act of 1930, and under Section 526, a U.S. entity can record its U.S. trademark with the Customs Service to prevent unauthorized importation of goods, even those with a uh, genuine trademark. The protection, however, extends only to goods of foreign manufacture. And the issue before the court was whether the Customs Service's regulations were uh, based upon a reasonable interpretation of that statute. And a majority of the court found the phrase uh, foreign manufacture to be ambiguous, and then as a result found that some of the uh, regulations of the Customs Service were reasonable. But to the extent that the Kmart case dealt with trademark law, it's important to remember that, uh, as this court recognized in the Sony uh, versus Universal Studios case, the, there's a difference between the scope and scheme and purpose of the trademark law as opposed to the copyright law, and that courts are not to take principles or doctrines from trademark law and extend them to copyright law. May, may I ask, since you cited the... Um Sony case, which dealt in part with fair use, how, under your reading of the statute, does the fair use doctrine protect uh, importation of foreign-made goods here? Well, I think that in enacting uh, Section 602A, Congress made a decision that the limitations under Chapter 1 of the Copyright Act, which would include uh, the fair use under Section 107, as well as uh, the first sale defense under Section 109A did not apply. Oh, so your, your view is it simply there is no fair use defense in this, in this uh, for imported goods? Yes, except to the extent that we think that the three exceptions that Congress did set out expressly to Section 602A do have a fair use element to them. Uh, the question, of course, before this court is whether Section 109A of the Copyright Act is a defense to copyright infringement under Section 602A for unauthorized importation of copies acquired outside the United States. The answer to this question should be purely a product of statutory interpretation. Prior to the enactment... Uh, Mr. Getson, you, you don't... Uh question the com contention of petitioners that there is no need to give any deference to the negotiation, negotiating position of the United States and trade agreements? Well, I don't, no, we do not agree with that. Um, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that... Well, then you say that there is some, de I thought you just said that we just pay attention to the, uh, the language used by Congress. But you're saying though, that that language should be interpreted through the prism of the executive branch deference? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that, uh, first of all, I don't think that the court needs to reach that issue to interpret the statute. I think the statute is unambiguous on its face. However, if the court were to consider uh, legislative t intent, 
since the Copyright Office was uh, very much involved in the writing of the 1976 Copyright Act, then I would simply say that its interpretation of that act corroborates... But it, it, it has no duties under this, this section, does it? I mean, it, it doesn't administer this act. No, unlike uh, 602B, where, the, where customs is required to uh, prohibit or bar the import of piratical copies, under Section 602A, it's up to the copyright holder to enforce the bar to entry of um, unauthorized importation. On your interpretation of the statute, actually, uh, that it's, it's sort of an import violation rather than a distribution violation, it really ought to be the Customs Service uh, to whom we, we, we might defer rather than the Copyright Office. Well, that, that, that could be. Uh, the but I, I don't understand your argument that just because the Copyright Office had much to do with the drafting of this provision, we give them deference. I mean, we certainly don't give General Motors uh, deference if they, uh, if they have had substantial uh, uh, participation in the drafting of a particular provision. Well, I think what I, what I meant by deference, and probably my choice of words was not particularly um, apt, what I meant was that if the court is going to look at legislative intent, which I don't think the court needs to do, that the Copyright Office's role in the writing of the statute is corroborated, is evidence of intent, and its current interpretation corroborates the legislative intent. You, 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 don't, you do not contend that we owe them deference? Not, not in that sense. Just in the sense that this is corroborative evidence of legislative intent if the court needs to reach that. Will you, will you, just concentrating on the language for a minute, will you explain how you get out of the box that uh, the right that's been in, infringed is the exclusive right to distribute copies under Section 106, a right which is otherwise qualified by the first sale doctrine, fair use doctrine, and others. Why, if it's the right the, granted by 106, why isn't that right qualified by the other provisions between 107 and 119 order. I don't quite understand your answer to that. Well, there are several reasons. Um, first of all, if um, Section 109A, the um, first sale defense, applied to Section 602A, then the three exceptions that Congress expressly identified... Well, I understand. I understand you're saying... I, I understand that argument, but initially... If, if it's just the 106 right, which has already been curtailed by the first sale doctrine, how can you, how can you say it's more than... How can, I don't understand. You say the 106 right has two different scopes, one for most infringement cases and then a broader right under 602A. Is that right? Well, Section 106, uh, subparagraph 3, which provides for um, the copyright holder... Subject control. 107 through 120, yeah. Right. <laughs> that, that gives the copyright holder the uh, right to control the exclusive distribution of, the, of a copy is not exhausted unless there is a sale. And importation does not denote a sale. So the distribution right under Section 106 is complementary uh, but separate from the importation right under Section 602A. Oh, but the, the importation right is treated as though it were an infringing sale. 
And to be an infringing sale, it has to get by all the things like the fair use doctrine, the first sale doctrine, and so forth. Maybe I just don't quite... No, I don't think it is, uh, Justice Stevens, I don't think it is treated as an infringing sale. The importation, the act of unauthorized importation of copies acquired outside of the United States itself is copyright infringement as recognized separately in Section 501A of the But, of course, the argument on the other side is there's no infringement, obviously, if there's been a first sale, because 109 applies. I mean, that's the argument, and and I I don't... It's kind of odd that you're here arguing all you have to do is look at the statute, it's so clear. Uh, The other side is saying the same thing. Uh, Frankly, I think the other side has the better argument on looking at the statute and seeing what it means. So um, I'm concerned about uh, what, if any, deference is owed to anybody here. What about the government's position on these bilateral trade agreements? Um, How much does that concern us? Is this something Congress can fix if they're worried about it? Is it not odd that we would find in the middle of the copyright statute some effort to control importation of some kind of goods? I mean, it just doesn't fit comfortably under the copyright law, does it? Well, I don't agree, uh, Justice O'Connor, because prior to the enactment of the 1976 Copyright Act, Section 602 prohibited the importation of piratical goods, meaning unauthorized copies. And Congress, by enacting Section 602A, Congress intended to extend that protection to the copyright holder beyond piratical goods to the unauthorized importation of authentic copies. Well, of course, that gets us to the issue. May I ask this? Do you agree that there was a distinction with your point? Again, I don't know the answer to this by any means, but is there a distinction between piratical goods on the one hand and goods lawfully manufactured pursuant to a, a British licensee of the Amer- an American author? Is there, isn't it, he, he relies heavily on that distinction. Is there such a distinction? I don't think so. You would, you would say that the piratical goods encompassed lawfully made goods pursuant to a, a license from the original author well, in the, it, under the British copyright. Justice Stevens, if you're, say, if you're asking prior to the enactment of Section 602A, was uh, the provision with respect to piratical goods applicable to that situation, then I think it was. You think it was? It was. But what were, the, what were all those experts uh, who testified saying they needed 6024, including Ms. Harriet, Bill Pell, and Horace Mann. Well, it, it wasn't, uh, there, there was no case law that, that expressly said that. And I think that Congress, by enacting six, Section 602A, wanted to make it very clear that uh, the unauthorized importation of authentic copies was copyright infringement. That makes sense, but I don't see how it helps you. I mean, they, they wanted to say, suppose that uh, uh, I bring in some books from England, and uh, really they are perfectly legitimate, but if I were to distribute them in the shop, it would violate the distribution right of the copyright holder. Well, 602 says stop them at the border. 
I mean, nothing in that theory tells you whether they are or are not subject to the first sale doctrine. Wouldn't hurt if they were, wouldn't hurt if they weren't. If, well, if there's been a first sale, no more reason to, no more reason if there's been a first sale to stop them than if there's been a first sale in the United States. It's the same problem. Well, the you want to apply a first sale doctrine to copyrighted books or not? If the answer is yes, why distinguish them where the first sale was abroad? If the answer is no, treat them all alike. Well, because the first sale is um, intended to reflect the fact that the copyright holder has exhausted its exclusive distribution right and has received the full value of its copyright. And a sale abroad, a sale outside of the United States, since the Copyright Act operates territorially, a sale outside of the United States does not exhaust... No, but he's been paid for it, hasn't he? I mean, if they're legitimate and not pirated, he's been paid for that. Well, under the facts of this case, which is true in many situations where uh, copyright holders sell the copyright goods abroad, they're sold at a discount, a significant discount. If those copies are allowed to come back into the United States and compete... So they the would copies, like this, the copyright holder, I take it, would like to have a vertically imposed territorial division, as would many manufacturers. Normally, we control that through the antitrust laws. Sometimes you can do it, sometimes you can't. Why, to repeat Justice O'Connor's question, would this antitrust issue of vertically imposed territorial restrictions suddenly be brought into the copyright law when it isn't brought into the trademark law or most other laws? I mean, wouldn't you have to have a fairly clear expression of congressional intent to find it rather, rather than the other way around? I mean, that, that's basically my underlying question in this case. Well, the concern is that if the copies uh, acquired outside of the United States at a discount come back into this country, then they compete with the copyright holders. Yes, that's also here. true when you sell to California. It's also true when you sell to Maine. If no. you decide to sell at a discount, it would be nice to do that often. And, and many manufacturers feel that way. Well, you can't the, sell at a discount to Maine, and you won't be able to to France. Well, but, if the sale were in the United States, then the copyright holder would have exhausted the right under 106.3 to control the um, exclusive distribution. And then Section 109A would apply. But if the sale is outside of the United States, then the right to control uh, distribution has not been exhausted. May I ask you to, okay, just to comment very briefly on one aspect of the case that I just can't quite get out of my head. It's easy to follow the arguments when you're talking about books and records and so forth, but when you're talking about the label on a product that is not itself patented or copyrighted, the label is controlling the distribution of the product. Is that relevant at all to the case? No, because the Copyright Act does not recognize classes of copyrights. There's no first-class copyright for a book or play and a second-class copyright for, for a, a product label or a product design. If Thank you, Mr. Ketch. I think you've answered the question. Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. of the text of the statute which I believe has been overlooked 
in the discussion thus far is in 602 itself. What is set forth in the appendix to the petition for certiorari on the very last page, E3, is not all of section 602. It is section 602A, which is in substance the new part of section 602. Section 602 also contains a subsection B. Where do you want us to be reading? What, what brief? Well, what subsection, uh, this, the 602A is set forth yes. in the appendix to the petition for certiorari. Yes. But you're referring us to something else. Where do we it find is not, something it's, else? It's not set forth in any of the briefs, the text of it. It's the, very, it's the most important part of the case. Well, I say that it's been overlooked. It's on page two of the appendix in the, in the amicus brief that uh, Mr. Olson well, well, Isn't it on page two of the red brief? Yes. All right, it's on page two of the red brief, then. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, in any event, um, the, the very first sentence carries forward what had been in existence, in, in somewhat different words, uh, in the 1909 Copyright Act, that, that importation of piratical copies is prohibited. Um, and the Customs Service is given authority to stop those at the border. That was always true. What is added in 602A... Yes, right there, Mr. Walsh, it's quite important to me. Did that section cover uh, copies made uh, pursuant to a, an authorized uh, British copyright? The piratical copies are copies that are, are not legitimate in the, in the country where acquired. So your answer is no. My answer is no. And so his, his response to the argument you're developing is, well, this, the big change of this statute was it covers that, that universe. The, the, the authority that has been given in 602A, the new authority, allows the uh, owner of the copyright uh, to prevent, without, if it doesn't have his permission, to prevent importation of legitimate copies as well as piratical copies. But the piratical copies are prohibited from entry separately as well under 602B. Therefore, the exceptions listed in 602A cannot be exceptions to allow the entry of piratical copies because their importation is already prohibited by the companion provision. It can, they, they can only be exceptions to allow the importation of copies that were legitimate copies authorized by the copyright holder or by the, where acquired. By the British copyright, right? However, but it, it all... Would have, it would apply right. to those. I want to be sure we understand what it does apply to. Well, there are three categories of goods. Piratical goods, stuff made pursuant to the British copyright, and stuff made pursuant to the American copyright. It picks up the middle category. But, of course, we have... Do you agree with that? Yes, but, but we have agreements with these countries so that there's reciprocal uh, uh, recognition of copyright rights, and the British copyright is very apt to derive from the American copyright or vice versa, depending on where the original copyright is, so that we're not really separating out very much. If there's a substantial reduction of copyrighted goods pursuant to copyrights in Trinidad and these other countries that these agreements are made with? Yeah. 
the goods are marketed in these countries, and our concern in negotiating these agreements uh, has been in protecting the distributors from uh, 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 gray market uh, uh, imports that would undermine the distribution of the American-made works. Uh, in these other countries. Briefly, you want to assure that the Americans uh, can sell cheaper in that country than they do at home, right? Uh, well, Briefly put. There, there, there are, uh, that is a part of the reason why we have been... Uh, uh, we don't even do that at home. We, you know, we generally don't, we, don't, don't make sure that people can sell in Maine cheaper than they can sell in California. Why would we want to do it for Tobago? There, there are reasons why we've been espousing this, because in order to market copyrighted works, and the whole point of copyright is to give incentives to create copyrighted works uh, and to protect their, uh, the ability of the authors to market. We're talking shampoo here, aren't we? I mean, these, these people this, just care about the labels. They're, they're trying to, the to issue, piece out the market for shampoo. The statutory issue is going to apply to motion pictures, sound recordings. Uh, also going to apply to shampoo. When, when the label that is affixed to it qualifies for copywriting. This is a venerable part of the copyright law, but I, I think it would be a mistake to let that drive this case. Well, what, what, is it your position that uh, in construing the uh, statutory language, we should give some sort of def deference to the position that our government has taken in negotiating with Trinidad and Tobago? We, we have not asked for deference, nor do we think deference is the right approach to this. We do believe that the court was uh, entitled to be informed about this. Well, see, if, if, if there's no deference, why are, I'm sure we're entitled to be informed about it, but why do you take, the, take up your time informing us about well, it? Well, because uh, of the very reason that the court gave. We, uh, just uh, uh, two years ago, in the case of Bimar Seguros, we quoted on page 25 of our brief uh, one sentence from the opinion. The very next sentence is what we uh, uh, think is pertinent here. And the very next sentence the, the starts sentence that you didn't quote. That we didn't quote. And the very next sentence starts off, that concern counsels against construing the act differently. That's all it does. It, it is a factor to take into consideration. Should we look, for as example, the court I, said. is it the case, I'm, I'm not certain at all about this. I, I have a recollection, though, that the European Court of Justice has found a, a, a first sale right, a similar kind of thing. Uh, through imports from one country to another. Are those relevant to? Am I supposed to look at those cases to see which way they come well, out? Well, they have not been brought to my attention, and, and uh, we're talking here about construing an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, no, and if that's a why is the government, uh, normally the government takes the position with what I consider here, you can see the analogy to territorial restrictions imposed by a manufacturer. Normally, the government wants those viewed under a rule of reason and is often hostile. Why, in this case, is the government willing to forego the rule of reason and just saying, well, they're okay across the board? Well, there are trade restraints in copyrighted and patented materials that are not permitted elsewhere, and they're, they're permitted under statutes that Congress has enacted. We really think the answer to this case 
is in the statutes that Congress enacted. Mr. Wallace, since it's obvious that there is some ambiguity here, room, room, room for different views, uh, since the government was taking this position in its uh, representations to other nations, why didn't it ask Congress for a clarifying amendment so that there would be no doubt about how the statute should be read? Well, I, I, you know, I'm not privy to reasons that uh, uh, why it did not. It took 15 years to do the revision in 1976. It started off at the very beginning of the 1960s with a, a series of studies uh, by uh, Congress and the committee, and uh, they heard from a great many people. I'm, t- I'm talking about once this problem surfaced. Now we have. The Ninth Circuit with one opinion, the Third Circuit with a different one, so that this particular problem has been uh, known for a while. And as far as I know, there hasn't been effort, any effort to get Congress to spare the judiciary this kind of decision. Well, this is not a problem that arises in government litigation. It's not just the government that might have come forward. In fact, we're talking now about the rights between two non-government parties uh, we, we looked in connection with another case pending before this court and, and didn't find a single pending case in which the United States has, uh, a single reported case in which the United States has sued anyone for copyright infringement. We're not usually involved in this litigation, so we're not necessarily the ones who would come forward with requests for an amendment that might clarify something. uh, 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 You're saying that this is not a very important issue for the government, however important it is for private... Well, uh, we do think it's important because it bears on positions we've been taking in international negotiations. It's important to the government in that way. I've I've been reading uh, subsection B, and I'm curious, could you just help me with the second sentence? Uh, the first sentence, the one you pointed to, uh, repeats the uh, prohibition against pirated, piratical works. The second sentence says, in the case of the uh, copies were lawfully made, the Customs Service has no authority to prevent their importation unless the provision of 601 are applicable. And 601 has to do with English literary works or something? Well, yes, uh, um, uh, what do I do with this? Well, Why doesn't the second sentence describe the, this case? Uh, it's... It, it, uh, um, It does describe this case for purposes of what the Customs Service is authorized to do. Congress in Section 602 did not expand the authority of the Customs Service to prevent importations. That is still limited to piratical copies. It it added 602A to give the copyright owner ability to move against copies that were legitimate in the country in which they were acquired. But that would be too difficult for the Customs Service to try to distinguish uh, between uh, 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 goods that may or may not be violating uh, contractual restrictions on their distribution. Um, So the Customs Service still has the same authority and substance that it had before. That just emphasizes, it seems to me, the the, uh, uh, statement in A that importation is not a violation that, that of, of, any, of any importation restriction. Importation is only a violation of the right to distribute. 
that sentence just just right. doubles up on that on that statement. The right to distribute is covered in section 106B, a separate section and a separate chapter of this provision. And something was added here to stand alone in a different chapter. And there are a series of exceptions uh, listed, which uh, uh, the petitioner, in, in substance, is saying can be explained because they would allow piratical copies in, but if they would not allow piratical not, not, copies in, it's, no, it's, not it's, piratical. It's, it's legitimate copies made under a different copyright, and under a different licensee. That's what he says. That takes care of the British uh, uh, copyright situation, and I, I, I don't think you've responded to that. But that keep referring to piratical. But, but that, that limits very Most of these uh, importations that are listed here as exceptions would have been ones where a first sale of a legitimate copy occurred. Would not be... Uh, would well, what about the personal right of a traveler in, in their baggage? You can bring in anything, piratical or otherwise, if it's in your luggage. Uh, there's nothing in the copyright law that allows a piratical copy to be brought in. Well, 602A now has a specific little provision for somebody arriving at customs with an illicit book but the point in your uh, bag. The point I've been trying to make, and perhaps I haven't explained it, is that 602B separately prohibits that. But is, is 602 prohibits the, it prohibits the import of any piratical copy. So can, can, can you correct this, which I'm about to say? 602A says the act of importing is an act of distribution. 602B says if what you're importing is a pirated copy, i.e. one that would have been unlawful had the laws of the United States applied there, you can seize it, customs person. If it's not a piratical copy, you can't seize it. You just notify. So B is explicating A. Now, what's wrong with what I just said, if anything? Because A, A has, has... A is covering both. B says, if at the border, it's a pirate, you can seize it. If not, you can't. It's you notify it, it doesn't, it, it, what, what, is, uh, what is wrong for a starter is that 602A says that uh, importation is an infringement uh, of the exclusive right to distribute. Right. It, it, it doesn't say it's a distribution. No, no, what is a distribution is in 106. Three, uh, and importation is treated separately from distribution and provision after provision of the act we, thank, that we set you. out in our brief. Thank you, Mr. Walsh. Uh, Mr. Walsh, our records reflect that this is your 141st appearance before the court. You have now eclipsed the 20th century record of 140 arguments accumulated by John W. Davis, who was a former Solicitor General. So on behalf of the court, I extend you our appreciation for your many years of advocacy and dedicated service during your 30 years in the Solicitor General's office. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chief Justice. It's been a great privilege. Mr. Snyder, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Wallace said at one point that we are, quote, talking here about interpreting an act of Congress, close quote. We agree with that. And we think that's the key issue before the court. And in our view, the position of the U.S. government in bilateral negotiations or bilateral agreements doesn't by itself change what Congress intended. And I would point out to the court that in one of the lodgings that the Solicitor General has provided the court is a 1990 telegram that includes the government's legal position and arguments 
before most of these uh, bilateral agreements were negotiated. In that memorandum, the government lawyer cites the Sebastian decision from the Third Circuit, which was at the time the only Court of Appeals decision on this issue anywhere. The government was aware that the law, as set forth by the Court of Appeals, was contrary to their position. We believe they could have come to Congress for a clarifying change. They still can. There is no reason why the government can't ask Congress to change the law. But we believe there's been nothing cited today or otherwise that suggests that Congress in the copyright statute was making the kind of broad anti-parallel imports rule that the Congress, that, that the respondents and their amici are now suggesting. All of the amici for respondents, including the Solicitor General, have been really quite candid in saying that a big part of what's at issue here is that many manufacturers do charge more for U.S.-made goods in the United States than those U.S. manufacturers charge for the same U.S.-made goods in foreign countries. The Solicitor General has argued that somehow that's good for our economy. That's a policy argument we don't agree with, but we do not think that that is an issue for this court to decide or for us to opine on. If Congress wishes for U.S. consumers to pay more for U.S. goods than foreign consumers, that is a, a legitimate issue for Congress to deal with as a matter of policy, parallel import. You could put it more kindly. You could say they want foreigners to pay less. Let's <laughs> see, it's more, more generous. I will accept that, Justice Scalia, although I don't agree with uh, the ultimate uh, decision. Well, they, they do say that the, the foreigners uh, have to advertise it on their own. They have to service it. It doesn't come with the warranty. So there is this well, justification for the difference. They do say that, Justice Ginsburg. I would point out that in the recording industry amicus brief that they filed here, they pointed out that videotapes cost as much as six times more in the United States than the same U.S. videotape is sold for in certain foreign countries. I don't think anyone contends that the marketing cost is 600 percent of the, of the price. The government has been quite candid in saying that they believe there are certain foreign policy values in promoting underdeveloped countries, some other economic issues. There may be antitrust issues at stake. Whatever those considerations are, we don't think in the copyright law Congress addressed them. And while I agree Justice Stevens, that copyrights can apply to labels sometimes. I think the tail is wagging the dog here, and that Congress certainly didn't intend the result that's, that's at issue here. We would also point out that the respondent... But you wouldn't have any problem if you just changed the label, right? I mean, you could, you could do everything and not have any problem about importing if you just made a different label. There, there might be some issues of tampering with goods if we were to take off the label of someone else's product, but I, I'm not prepared to say what the state law issues there are. Certainly the, the copyright law itself wouldn't, wouldn't uh, I think, address that, I agree. But there may be some other tort issues that might come into play. The respondent has acknowledged that under his theory, the fair use doctrine of Section 107 doesn't apply to imported goods. We think that is an extremely important point because the logic of their position is that none of these exceptions apply, including fair use. When the owner of the London Times gives authority to import multiple copies of the London Times to sell in the United States, under the respondent's theory, the owner of the London Times copyright cannot bring in his own newspaper if there is a book review in the London Times that quotes from someone else's book in what normally would be considered fair use, because the fair use doctrine that allows scholarly books, treatises, 
book reviews to quote someone else's work, it only allows that under 107. Under their theory, 107 is simply inapplicable to imports. It would be a quite major change in the law of this United States. We think their entire argument, getting rid of the first sale doctrine, also is a major change we have in our country. Thank you, Mr. Snyder. Thank you, Mr. The case is submitted.